America. My name is Amy Yosef from Punk. I come to you live every Thursday about this time, usually a little bit later in the afternoon. And then I try to do a relationship show on Monday. Um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. So today I want to talk about the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation is a system of government we established after we in the United States established after the Revolutionary War. So by 1783, the Revolutionary War was done and now that we're not governed by the laws of england we need laws to govern ourselves to establish property holdings and marriage rights and you know establish you know the degradation of black people all of that we need to make it um we need to govern ourselves because we didn't go to war for the sake of anarchy we went to war for the sake of self-governance now the southern people in the united states didn't like the idea that folks in london or king george anyone else could at any point in time redefine property that wouldn't include their slaves and so um you know the southerners wanted to protect their property and northerners wanted to uh control their taxes and um not be harassed by government officials and you can read all of this in the declaration of independence and, and people in the middle wanted to know what they can do what they could not do to native americans and they wanted to be able to decide that themselves not have it be mandated from across the pond right so those are all the wars reasons we went to uh, the revolutionary war you can read about them in the declaration of independence it's been in all the papers and after the revolutionary war we needed to be able to govern ourselves and so we came up with the articles of confederation the problem is the articles of confederation when i say we i mean like you know the ruling class of, of landowning whites came up with the articles of confederation the problem with the Articles of Confederation is they treated all 13 of the colonies as independent states. I mean, we had like seven different kinds of money and um, pretty much interstate commerce looked a lot like international relations in terms of both the money changing and potential tariffs, right? So interstate commerce was a big deal and states couldn't even defend themselves because remember, without a nation, you, didn't have, you don't have the National Guard. So when some ex-veterans in Massachusetts, uh, Revolutionary War veterans in Massachusetts decided that they didn't want to pay taxes. They marched on a state capitol saying, I'm not going to pay my taxes and ended up with four people dead, right? That was Shays Rebellion. And, uh, you know, they didn't want the English telling them to pay taxes and they didn't want the Massachusetts uh, governor to pay tax, uh, tell them to pay taxes. So this is a, a Revolutionary War veteran who marched on the Massachusetts state capitol. He was a farmer and he wanted to not pay his taxes. And you got up a bunch of revolutionary um, veterans who thought that they fought for the right to pay their taxes. You can imagine if the, if the state government of South Carolina had immediately um, outlawed slavery, then a bunch of planters would have like it would have been chased rebellion south where a bunch of planters got together and marched on you know columbia or uh, uh, the capital of georgia at the time um so these revolutionary war veterans marched for uh, fought for the war that they fought for and then you know had to work it out through the articles of confederation so each of you have to understand that each of the colonies had their own character and had their own kind of government. They had different state religions. For example, in Massachusetts, you had to be a Christian in order to hold public office. Um, in Pennsylvania, no, in Virginia, Virginia, I'm pretty sure. In Virginia, Baptist preachers were being arrested for preaching, like in public. 
Like that was um, so each like the states had their own churches. And it was kind of it was kind of a nightmare. Although you had freedom to move from state to state, the goods and services like might be subject to tariffs from the state. And like I said, you're talking about seven different kinds of money. And it's impossible and all national taxes were collected by the state. <laughs> so um, all federal taxes were collected by the state. So that was there wasn't really a mechanism to execute anything. And you didn't even have an executive. There wasn't a president. The president was just the head of the Senate, and the Senate was just kind of a Congress of state representatives. So um, even if the Congress came up with laws, there was no body that was tasked and funded and authorized to uh, kind of overwhelm state authority override state authority and execute it, right? So you didn't have an executive branch. So the Articles of Confederation were awash for all of those reasons. States internally couldn't retain, sustain themselves. That's why you get Shays Rebellion. And states couldn't uh, handle interstate co um, commerce and relations. And, and so we had a constitutional convention. At first, I thought they were just kind of going to revamp the Articles of Confederation. But then James Madison comes and says, I have a plan. Madison's a little guy, didn't think people would take him seriously, so we had the other guy from West Virginia, a guy by the name of Randolph, read out the plan, the Virginia plan, which had the plan that we kind of think of as the U.S. government. He, Madison was a bookish guy, much like myself, who um, had read Montesquieu on, on you know, the division of government and arguments for the division of government and what, how the government should be divided. Um, and he, you know, kind of had the idea of a legislative branch, an executive branch, which the, uh, the Articles of Confederation didn't really have. And they left execution to the states, which executed dicely, and a judicial branch, which would uh, interpret the Constitution in case there were um, uh, conflicts about how the rules were to be interpreted. Right? So Madison came up with this plan, and the People from the southern states at night didn't like the idea that the legislative branch, the branch that created the laws, would be apportioned by population so that there was a compromise. And so you had two uh, chambers of government. You had the House of Representatives, which is apportioned by um, population, and the Senate, which was apportioned by states. So every state gets two senators, but the number of representatives is doled out by how many um, People are in your state, and that's figured out by the census. So you have 300, uh, I'm sorry, 435 representatives and 100 senators, um, and that's how you get the Congress. But that's the result of a compromise. So in a well-ordered world, we might want to relook at that compromise and just abolish the Senate. Um, and if you want staggered terms for representatives, maybe give them four-year terms on staggers. But you, 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 could, you could abolish the Senate because the Senate was a compromise for small states, which I think might, in my estimation, might be overrepresented if you actually care about um, representation. Now, there are some quality of life because I've, I've, I've lived in both. I've lived in a lot of big states, all of the big states. I've lived in a lot of the big states, not all of them, uh, including California. And I do, I am sensitive to the idea that people in California and New York and a few of the populous cities on the eastern seaboard and the western coast, if left to their own devices, might ride roughshod over the rest of the nation because they're just indifferent to, to uh, the people who want the quality of life of, of, 
of middle America. And the middle America does offer a different quality of life insofar as housing costs are lower and, you know, density isn't what it is on the coast. It's not controlled in the way it is on the coast. So if we want the blessings of liberty to be secured by everyone, there are different kinds of ways to be free. And the different way to be free in North and South Dakota is different than the way to be free in, you know, in California. And if they want to protect that and they need, they feel like they need senators to protect that, then I'm open to arguments for keeping the Senate to uh, um, represent the people who are population, the states who are population poor but land rich, and the people who like, who appreciate the lifestyle that you can only get in a state that is population poor but land rich. I'm okay. I'll entertain arguments. But let's go on to the Congress as a compromise. Congress as a compromised institution and the Constitution emerging from representatives of uh, state representatives of the, uh, of the uh, colonies, right? So the problem is going to be that the state representatives of the colonies had specific needs that they needed realized in the Constitution, right? So the Constitution is itself a historical document. And I think when we talk about the Constitution, we don't think of it as a historical document. This is one reason why we're a little bit too slow to make amendments to it. The, we need to understand that the Constitution is a historical document that emerged to deal with specific problems felt by a specific class and to subordinate other problems, right? So the, another compromise is the famous three-fifths compromise where the Southern states wanted more representatives, but they didn't want to actually treat black people as people. So we decided, well, we need to count them as residents, but we, need, but we don't want to call them citizens or people. Um, so they're three-fourths of, uh, three-fifths of a person, right? And that's a compromise that's written into the Constitution in the same way that the Senate's written into the Constitution as a compromise for, you know, states that are land... Um, land rich but people poor and you have to understand that the u.s constitution wasn't ratified by all of the colonies and rhode island didn't even show up to the constitutional convention convention so it's a compromised document that just made it through to represent the interests of a certain class of people a certain class and a certain race and a certain gender of people and needs to be constantly like reevaluated to see that it, it meets the most kind of rigorous understanding of freedom that, that, that we've arrived at currently. For example, people who work weren't considered real people, right? If you work for a wage, you weren't considered free because, you know, and Adam says this clearly in his, in his letters, that if you work for somebody, if you're dependent on somebody, you're not really politically free because ultimately you're just a tool of your employer. And that's true. That's true. One of the reasons why I do this is because I am uh, more of an independent, I can be more of an independent thinker knowing that I have an independent stream of income. And when I say independent, I mean I'm dependent on lots of little of yous and no big university um, uh, because, you know, the UGA can, can do what it needs to do, but I still have money to feed my family. By the way, if you appreciate what I'm doing and think I should be able to feed my family on the quality, uh, on the strength of the, on the, uh, I should be able to feed my family on the strength of the wisdom I dispatch every Monday and Wednesday, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in $5, $15, $50 a month. 
because I'm giving you the quality of civics lessons that you didn't quite learn in your classes, right? So many of the founders thought that wage laborers, wage laborers were actual slaves and real free people had to be either independent, independent owners or, uh, you know, you know, landed gentry, independent, or they pretty much had to be independent owners or independent professionals or like just had a lot of property that could make the land for them, right? So either you're independent professionals or landed gentry. And that really hasn't changed. That really hasn't changed because we haven't understood. That, remember the 1776 and the early constitution, this is before the industrial revolution. Um, you know, the big factory, the factory you find in like the Adam Smith type of liberalism, they're talking about 10, 15 people. They're not talking about Amazon. They don't think that 95% of the free people in the United States who are going to be considered free people work for somebody. 95% of the workers in the U.S. are employees, right? That, that, this wasn't a nation by and for the employees. It was for the people, and the people were understood as um, independent, uh, independent professionals or landed gentry, right? It wasn't understood as workers like almost explicitly, even Lincoln, when he was arguing for the Homestead Acts and, you know, um, <laughs> native removal, the argument was that if we want people to be free, we need to secure them land. Um, because working for somebody, and this is, this is Lincoln, you'll get a lot of this in Private Government, a book by Elizabeth Anderson. If you're interested in this line of argument, go get Private Government by Elizabeth Anderson. She goes through this line of government. Uh, uh, this line of argument about how we need to be very careful about corporate power in a world where everyone's an employee because the federal constitution isn't really un like didn't really think that was freedom and, and didn't really take the needs of employees seriously. But now that so many of us are employees and we really can't risk losing our job, we need to might we might want to think about we might want to think about what it means um, to be a nation of employees, right? So uh, Lincoln, when doling out land for arguing for doling out land for the Homestead Acts, argues that we should, uh, that people who work for other people, that should be a time in their life, a phase in their life, kind of like childhood, a moment in their life before they become real adults and like you see, own their own business on their own land. So we need to just give people land if we want to create a nation of real adults who can govern themselves. Right? So, and this is in the 1860s. Homestead Acts even um, um, extend past that. You know, a freakish amount of wealth in the United States can tra be traced to the Homestead Acts. And the idea that employees aren't real people. We didn't actually think of employees as a class of real people, real citizens, until, honestly, the, the New Deal programs, uh, the National Labor Relations Board Act. And, like, that's what we, those acts functionally created the employee as a respected um, position in society. And as we reel back those, um, that sensibility, you know, it's not great to be an employee now. Well, it's good to be an a white employee. <laughs> they still got 501Ks and stuff. But there, there's this idea that if we are going to be a nation of employees, which a modern economy needs, because if you want competition and scale, you're going to have to have bigger and bigger businesses that employ more and more people. We need to understand that there will always be more employees than employers. Um, and that employees are still need to be able to be free citizens. So I think you need to talk about something like a federal job guarantee, um, 
we can even, you know, I'd, I'd be comfortable with a federal job guarantee that um, had both experience and age-related um, um, uh, wage ties. So anybody who's over 30 who needs a federal job, if you go to work, you get it. And like that's, you know, $30, $35 an hour. Whereas if you're under 25, that same federal job is $20, $22 an hour. Right? If you have dependents, you get more, you get more for work. I'd be fine at the federal job. I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine for opening up that conversation with that. Because the idea is that the government exists to secure freedom. Um, and you really can't be free for some of these wages. And you can't really fulfill all the other responsibilities. And you shouldn't be a slave to your, the person who happens to be your employer. Your employer is your employer. They're not your master in the same way. So you need options. So you need a few different sort of conditions in order to um, actually be free. And these should be constitutionally protected and enumerated, right? In the same way that, uh, you know, I think the 14th Amendment talked about property, right? <laughs> and in civil relations. We need to understand that we need constitutional protections for workers if we expect workers to be free and to be a nation that includes workers. All right? And the protections for workers should be... Um, as robust as the protections for gun owners and owners in general. All right. So we need to understand the Constitution as a historical document that emerged out of, a, out of what was thought to be a, a legitimate document, the Articles of Confederation, right? but then was revealed to be inadequate. We need to understand that the Constitution was thought to be a legitimate document. It's just another moment where we have a document that's thought to be legitimate, but is fundamentally inadequate to the realization of freedom. Like, and this is why the Constitution has sustained a legislative body that is mostly made up of millionaires. <laughs> Congress, mostly millionaires. Senate, I think it's like 100% millionaires. Um, uh, and what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and this is a constitutional body that has not provided the appropriate federal uh, provisions to secure black people freedom in the United States. I'm going to do another episode next week because we got data in Athens, Georgia. Next week might be a local, a local show, a super local show, where I talk about this data we got in Athens, Georgia. I live in a town, Athens, Georgia. It's about 30, uh, a third black. And it turns out that in terms of, uh, and the school system that is about 54% black, town is the third black. School system is about 54% black. School system over the last uh, few years has had um, $400 million, $400 million um, um, in contracting, has spent $400 million in contracting. And it turns out black-owned firms have gotten 0 0.06 of that contracting, of that $400 million in contracting. Now, there's a report that releases this, and it has, like, and it, it's, it's fascinating. So I'm going to go over that in detail, and that's going to be the show for next week. Um, but... Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time, if you appreciate what I'm doing. And I want to leave this with just the notion that we should study the Articles of Confederation to understand that the Constitution itself is a historical document that came, that emerged to meet a specific set of problems, but then also ignored other problems. And if we want to get to those other problems, we need to be open, more open to amending the Constitution, because there's always just a slaveholder's Constitution. Um, but it was a more adequate slaveholders constitution than the Articles of Confederation were, right? So thank you for your time. 
if you don't like what I'm saying, go ahead and do your own research. You know, I, I, I think I stand by everything I said. And uh, if you support what I'm doing, which you should, and you support my independence, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com. Kick in $5, $15, or $50 a month. Because honestly, if I get enough of you guys to give me this, I can hire someone to seriously put up a series of clips. And then I can go on TikTok and everything. I, you know, I, I, I need money for that. And if you appreciate what we do, then, or what I do, then you will kick in and then we could grow the channel. Um, and I think, I think people could just go through my catalog and just put together some, I could, I'd like, I'd love to hire someone to just put together some, uh, clippable moments. And so support the cause. Um, let's make a better world. www.funkyacademic.com. Peace.